Take your Bibles, if you will, and open them back up to Hebrews chapter 5 and 6. Always like to have our Bibles open. Probably want to make a bookmark and ask us to flip around a couple times. But Hebrews, as a book, is often considered one big sermon. Now, as you guys can tell, my notes are often a lot shorter than Hebrews, so I'll give you that, that little bit of a, of a grace, I guess. But I think it tells us a lot about what it means to be a Christian. Obviously, all the books in the New Testament tell us a lot about what it means to be a Christian. But I think Hebrews has a special, intense focus that it's often easy for us to just kind of read over and, and miss. As we've gone through Hebrews, I've often, you know, I've titled this, this series going through it, The Supremacy of Christ. And Hebrews does focus so much on how supreme Christ is. Last week, we talked, he talked about how Jesus is the great high priest. But here, in just about, just about the middle of the book, you figure there's 13 chapters, we get an interesting little diversion. Now, there's a lot of warning passages in Hebrews, but this one particularly stands out to me because he's, he's started talking about some of the great mysteries of God, some of the great doctrines of who Christ is, some of these higher things, and then he stops and he says, we have more to say about this. I want to tell you more, but you've become dull of hearing. So there's a lot of pastoral care that's going into this, and I know it's Sounds a little bit counterintuitive to say, well, there's a lot of pastoral care going into telling somebody that they're dull of hearing, that they're being sluggish. Those two words are translated from the same Greek word. That's why I think that this section goes together. But right here in the middle of Hebrews, we get some of the hardest to deal with passages, some of the most in-your-face, most convicting uh, verses of the entire New Testament. So let's just begin where the book of Hebrews begins on this section. Talk about spiritual immaturity. Look back with me. Starting in 5.11, he says, About this we have much to say, but it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have the powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. The New Testament holds out this incredibly high standard. It doesn't have this idea of churchgoers and spiritual elite, of people who are Christians and then people who are really Christians. No, the New Testament especially expects all of us to be able to articulate the faith we've been given. And it's why Peter can say that well, you should always be ready to give a defense for the faith that is within you. Because we are a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. Each and every one of us has been given the Holy Spirit. Each and every one of us can enter into the throne room of God. 
The veil has been torn for each and every single person who will call upon the name of the Lord. And while that is a great, great blessing, you guys have heard me say it before, our greatest blessings are our greatest responsibilities. The fact that God has done so much for you means you have a responsibility to know what he did for you. If you are a Christian, you're called upon to know what that means. And you'll notice he says that by this time, all of you ought to be teachers. Now, he's not saying that every single person in the congregation should be a pastor by now. I think James makes that very clear. He says not all of you should be teachers. What is he saying then? He's saying that you, as someone who have been in the church, these people have been in the church for 5, 10, 15, 20 years maybe at this point, who have learned about Christ, who have spent their lives dedicated towards Christ, you should be able to raise Christian children. You should be able to teach your children about God. You should be able to teach your friends when they ask you, what, what does it mean that you're a Christian? You should be able to tell them what it means. Right? And he's, he's giving us which doctrines he thinks are important. You know, repentance, faith, washings, which is generally, generally understood to be baptisms. It's even translated baptisms a lot of times. Laying on of hands, eternal judgment, resurrection of the dead. He's saying each and every single person who claims to be a Christian should know that. You should just know what they mean. You should be able to articulate it. And you should be able to tell your friends, the people you run into that ask you what it means to be a Christian, your kids, your family, whoever, you should be able to tell them what that means. But then there's something even more important in there. He says, you can know all of that and still be an immature Christian. You can speak with tongues of angels, you can know all of the different things and be an immature Christian. He's, that's, that's something that should kind of grab our attention. Because it means that maturity as a Christian is not just a doctrinal issue. It is not just what you know. There's many people throughout the history of the church who have been able to articulate and elucidate the doctrines of God better than I can, better than pretty much any of us can. But if we see them fall, and when we see them fall, what we learn is they were immature Christians. That's what he's telling us here, that it's an issue of wisdom as well. It's a doctrinal issue because if you don't know what it is you believe, then you're not going to be able to make the right confessions about who Christ is. You're not going to be able to test every spirit that comes. You and the people around you as a congregation won't be able to stand when uh, false teachers come against you. When they come as sheep, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And this is something that, he pray, that God praises the churches for in Revelation, is that they test those people. They test the false apostles. They know who they are, because they know their doctrines well enough. But Hebrews is telling us that there's more than that, and this is why Christ will tell us to return to our first, our first love, is because spiritual maturity is also 
a wisdom problem. Now, all of us will probably agree that as you get older, you get wiser, hopefully, right? Hopefully. But why don't we expect the same thing in our Christian lives? It's normal for us to expect little kids to act like little kids. You know, if I walk into a house and they've got five or six kids, all of them under the age of 10, and they say, oh, sorry about the mess, I say, okay, you know, it's fine. It's not that big of a deal. If you walk into a house that's all adults and there's still crown drawings on the wall and there's still, you know, used tissues everywhere, you're going to say, wait, 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 something's not right here. And that's part of what's going on here. Paul tells us that when he was but a child, he spoke and acted like a child. But when he became a man, he put away his childish things. And I think that that's part of what's going on here, that part of being mature, part of growing as a Christian, right? they tell us in verse 14, is having the powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. It's learning to be a person who can tell what is right and what is wrong and knowing what love actually looks like. This is one of the most interesting problems for New Testament Christians that I see people run into all the time. We love to say, well, we're, not, we're under grace, we're not under the law. You know, we don't need the Old Testament as much anymore. The law, like 611, 613, depending on who you follow, laws in Exodus through, through, through Deuteronomy. Look at how crazy they were. Thank goodness we're under grace. Now tell me exactly what to do. I want a commandment. And this is, this is why Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount is so radical. Because like it or not, human beings are made in such a way that we like to be told what to do. We like to have clear-cut lines. Because if you have a clear-cut line of, well... Help the homeless person, right? Let's take that as an example. If you have a clear-cut line of give the homeless person $20, you can do that every time and always feel great about yourself and say, okay, well, I just I did what I was supposed to do. I skated through on the bare minimum. But Christ doesn't call us to do that. He calls us to love them, to care for them. So does that look like giving them $20? Does that look at like changing society into such a way that we care for people who are homeless and destitute? That's just an example. It's so much easier for us with clear-cut laws, and that's why we cling to them. But wisdom is learning what it means when God says that he desires mercy and not sacrifice. When Christ says the two most important commandments are to love God and love your neighbor, And he says that all of the law and the prophets are fulfilled in these. It means that there is something going on beyond you can skate through with the bare minimum. It's not what Christ called you to do. And that's part of why the writer of Hebrews puts in such a severe warning here. 
And I think Peter gives us a great commentary on this in 2 Peter. Just write it down. You don't have to turn. 2 Peter 1, 3 through 9, he says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from corruption that is in the world and of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplant your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours, you are increasing in them, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful, in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, and this is the kicker, but whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. He's forgotten. If you're not growing, you've forgotten. That's a terrifying statement. But it, there's a reality that we have to understand there's no middle ground between God and Satan. There's no off-limits section. There's no sideline that you can sit on and catch your breath. You're in a war. Now, it's a war that's been won. But every single human being who's ever been born is in the middle of it. Every one of us. And that's why Christ can say that if you're not with me, you're against me. If you don't sow with me, you scatter. That's why Christians are supposed to live in such a way that they only do the good works of God. Now, does that mean you don't have a job? No. Does that mean that every single person should be dedicated solely to ministry in such a way that none of us work or do anything besides minister to each other? No. Clearly not. We're supposed to be a city on a hill. But let's think for a moment about the parable of the talents. It's in Matthew 25. If you want to turn with this one, we're going to spend a little bit of time here. Matthew 25, starting in verse 14, he gives us the parable of the talents. Now, this is one of the most famous parables. And it's one that I think is particularly applicable to what we're talking about today. Starting in verse 14, he says, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them to his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who received the five talents went at once and traded them and made five more. So also he who had two talents made two more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the first talent came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered me five talents. Here I have made five more. Then we see that the second servant did the same. So skip on down to verse 24. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, 
reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. He did nothing with it. He did not add anything to it. He's the person that Peter is talking about who is so blind to have forgotten that he was baptized into remission of sins. And what does is, what is, what is the master say? You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not seed, scattered seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who is taken, who has not, even what he has will be taken. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. If you've heard the gospel, if you're sitting here today, if you're listening to this, if you're someone who's been in church and you've heard that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life, died on the cross for your sins, was raised as an assurance, and now that through faith in him we can be born again onto salvation, then you've received a talent. The question is, what are you going to do with it? Because if we stick it in the ground and we do nothing with it, if that information is completely worthless to us, if we're so afraid of it, of the things of this life, of the things of this world, that they choke out our concern for that talent, what does that result in? Apostasy. It's a word that we don't use too much, but it's the act of walking away from Jesus Christ, turning your back on it completely. Now, Hebrews talks about this. If you remember back, we'll go back to 6, 4 through 8. He says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened and who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the Word and the powers of the age to come, and then fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Who else can he be talking about there but Christians? Who else has tasted the Holy Spirit, tasted that the Word is good? Now that's, that's scary, right? Can he honestly mean anyone else? I would say no. So to not mature, to walk away, to turn your back on Christ Jesus, what, what would that leave you with? Jesus tells us that if a demon is cast out, seven more will come back, worse than itself. What fear there should be of us returning to a non-Christian life. And if you're listening to this and you're sitting there thinking to yourself, what's he on about? My life wouldn't be that different. You're the person that Hebrews is talking about who says you become dull of hearing and sluggish to do good things. You're the person that he's warning here that life without Christ is terrifying. For there's no hope. But look back with me to verses 7 and 8. He says, For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it, and that's you, that's the land, and produces a crop useful to those whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. 
We're told to abide in Christ and be fruitful in John 15, and that any branch that does not bear fruit will be torn away. And this is what he's talking about. This passage is a real passage. God is telling you a real thing. He is actually giving a warning here. But look back with me for just a second. He doesn't say in verse 8 that you are cursed. He says you're near to being cursed. Oh, what a great word that is. If God is everywhere, what's between you and being cursed? But God. If God's promises are true, then that's what we have to rest on. Because Paul can tell us that he is convinced that nothing can separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither fears of today nor worries about tomorrow, not even the power of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below, indeed nothing in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God. Nothing. What does that mean then? How are we to understand this tension between these two passages? means that if nothing can separate us, that hope remains. It means that the gospel of Jesus Christ does not rest on our sinful hands. And I think Isaiah, in chapter 57, tells us some of the most beautiful lines about it. Starting in verse 17, he says, Because of the, or 16, he says, For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the Spirit would grow faint before me in the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. God's talking about people who are falling away, who are turning from him. What does he say? Verse 18. What a beautiful verse. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners. Creating the fruit of the lips... Peace, peace to the far off and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing of the sea, for it cannot be quiet. And as waters toss up mire and dirt, there is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. This is why the author of Hebrews can say that Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things belonging to salvation, because salvation rests not on our own sinful hands, but rests upon God. Because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So is this warning passage real? Yes. But God will hold you, and if we understand what Isaiah is telling us and reconcile the two, what we learn is that those who have been saved if they slide, will return. And if they do not return, if they do not return to a peaceful life, to the peace of God, what do we learn? They're the wicked. So what are we to do? How are we to know which side of this we are on? How are we to make our calling and election sure, which is what Peter tells us to do? It's become, we should become imitators of those who have inherited the promises, those who have gone before us. That's what we're told in verse 12. How do you know that you're a Christian? How do you know that you're saved? How do you know you rest on the promises of God? You persevere. 
And this is how great Christ is, that He can come and He can hold you even when you are trying to fall away. And now if you hear that and you think to yourself, well, great, I can go out and I can continue sinning and one day I'll turn back. You've missed the point. You're not saved. You're going to harden your heart in a way that is not okay. What we have to understand is that wisdom is the ability to walk with Christ. And James tells us that if any of us lacks wisdom to do this, we should ask God for it. For He gives without reproach. He gives greatly. And this is an area that I think not, not only this church, but every church, not only in America, but in the entire world, needs to grow in. It's that we don't pay enough attention to wisdom. Christ came and said to love your neighbor. He didn't say exactly how that looks. He didn't say that means give your neighbor $20. He didn't say that means shout at your neighbor from the street corners that they're going to hell. He didn't give you a single do this commandment. But that's what we want. Instead, he said, love your neighbor. He said, figure out what their needs are. This is what James tells us, that if we figure out what their needs are and we meet those needs and then we tell them about Christ and we're doing God's work, but if they are hungry and cold and we simply tell them, be fed and be warm, that we've done nothing. And this is something that all of the church needs to do, not just us, but everyone. There's over 100 Baptist churches in Louisville, just as an example. How quickly do you think if every single Baptist church in Louisville worked together, we could solve homelessness in this, in this city? Right. And we're not talking about a, a hundred churches with 10 people in them. Our church, we've got a little over 30 here this morning. Other churches have thousands of people in them. And this is just the Baptist churches. I was not con considering Southeast down the corner has, what, 10,000 people between all their campuses? Wisdom would be us all coming together for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Wisdom would be us figuring out what it means to love our neighbors, to walk in such a way that they see Jesus in us, that our light shines forth before men and they glorify our Father who art in heaven. And this is where peace comes from. James tells us that wisdom from above is first peaceable, or first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Is this not the same thing Isaiah was telling us? That God will put the fruit of peace on his lips, peace, peace to those who are far off and near? Did Jesus Christ not promise that those who are the peacemakers will be called sons of God? Is that not who we're called to be? If we've been saved, are we not children of God? If you're living a life that brings glory to the Son of God, it's going to be a life of wisdom. And if you're not, you need to repent from that and turn towards Him. If we don't have wisdom, how will we ever know how to judge rightly between what comes into this world? If we ever have to deal with church discipline, how would we ever do that without wisdom? How will we know how to fellowship correctly, how to care for each other without wisdom?
That brings us to the question that I think is the biggest sticking point in this, this section. How do we consider those who have been members of our congregations, who have proclaimed Christ, who have, we really thought were saved, and now they've walked away? Because anyone can tell you that that's some of the hardest stuff to deal with. What does John tell us? Since they have gone out from us, they are not of us. 1 John 2, 19. So how much more do they need our love? If they've heard the gospel, they've received that talent and just stuck it away, and we know that Christ is a cruel and harsh master, and if we're going to take that parable seriously, then we have to love them all the more. Because Jesus comes and he says to the Pharisees that if he had not come and spoken to them, they would have had no sin. But since he has, it will be worse for them on the day of judgment than it will be for Tyre and Sidon, than it will be for Sodom and Gomorrah. If we're really to love our neighbors, if we're to love our families, if we're to love the people around us, then we really have to take that seriously. And we have to say that, oh my God, they need Jesus Christ more than I could ever imagine. If that doesn't break you up on the inside, to know that people you love are without Jesus Christ, that people you love are going to hell without him, then you've got a heart problem. And if we're to take this seriously, if we're to become imitators, if we're to be a city on a hill, a light to the people around us, then it has to be that we bring Jesus Christ to them. It has to be that we live lives relying on the Holy Spirit, filled with the wisdom of God. For the wisdom of God is greater than the wisdom of the world. In fact, the foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of the world. So if we're to live lives where we actually believe God's promises, if you truly believe that nothing can separate you from the love of God, then we've got to take Christ to the people around us. Just as a little exercise, let's think about how many people live between here and the apartment complex down the street? 200, 500, 1,000? I know there's over 200 houses in the subdivision back there. If every one of them heard about Jesus Christ and was here this Sunday morning, they'd be standing room only. And then some. If every single person here Talk to whoever it is you talk to the most, your friend, your loved one, your sisters, your brothers, your mothers, your children, and said, hey, let me talk to you about Jesus Christ. Come to church with me. Let's fellowship together. Let's be together. Let's care about Jesus Christ together. Let's worship together. Again, you'd be standing room only. So if we want to fix the issue of our churches, not just this one, but all the churches across Louisville, across the United States in general, of dwindling populations, of people turning away from Christ, then it doesn't look like us putting up bounce houses and watering down the gospel. It looks like us living lives filled with wisdom. It looks like us becoming mature Christians, able to give a defense, to lead 
It looks like us meeting the needs of people and loving them. And is that vague? Maybe it is. That's why you need wisdom to decide it. That's why we have to rest on the promises of God that he will accomplish everything that he has promised to accomplish. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word that you have given it to us in such a way that we can all have it, we can hold it, we can come to know it better and better, that we can spend more time studying than almost any generation ever come before us. Father, we just want to praise your name that you have given us such great and wonderful promises that you will hold us and you will care for us. And Father, we, we ask that you work in our lives in such a way that we take these warnings seriously, that we truly believe that you came and died in such a way that there is nothing to separate us from you anymore. And we want to we want to pray for those who have gone out from us, who have turned their back on Jesus Christ. And Father, we, we pray that we may live in such a way that those people in our lives see us and see you through us and turn to you. So Lord, send your Holy Spirit to fill us, to lead us into all truth, to give us wisdom on how to glorify your Son and win others over to you. For James tells us that he who turns a sinner from his ways will cover a multitude of sins. And we pray that each and every one of us will bear fruit in your name. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.